so today we are gonna have a good time i'm excited i've been looking forward to this <laughs> this is we are miracosta i hate introducing myself i just like to hide behind the snack bar um <laughs> i'm so thrilled today to be joined by a dear friend and colleague. My name is Dr. Jade Hidla. I am the proud first-generation Vietnamese-American faculty member here at Miracosta in the letters department. I am the dedicated co-coordinator of our MANA program, serving Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander students. I am the editor-in-chief of your campus publication, Tide Pools. And I am the co-creator of our Asian Pacific Islander Desi American Ally Training Program. Boom. And folks, she really is a badass. And we had a wonderful time talking and learning more about one another and sharing our similarities pedagogically in our lives. Um, just a beautiful conversation. And I hope you enjoy. Thank you. I've set up a complicated network of screens to hide my mic from sounds because I have construction nearby. Oh. There's, this office is right up in the middle of all of that. So that's a good time. There's something that gets into the inside of the nerves in my teeth when I hear the yeah. metal grinding and it just is very unnerving. <laughs> I know, I know. It's like a beeping, this constant beeping that I, I don't know where it's coming from. I don't know why it has to go on so long. Yeah. It come, it's like right by the window here. So I'm I'm sure this is a, a wonderful office to record a podcast. We're going to give it a go. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be great. It's going to be great. All the beeping will just signal all the inappropriate things I'm saying. Yeah. I love so much that you are authentically you and you inspire me to want to do that. So when I, but I'm like, I just need to tell you how I'm feeling. So you know that I'm a little bit chaotic right now, but I think that's, there's something about you that I feel very good that I can like say that and be safe and know that that's like a good thing. And I think that's just something really nice about you that you bring to your work. Well, thank you so much. Those are such uh kind and generous words I'm I'm glad that I can make you feel that way yeah. because I feel like faculty invest a lot of time and energy and emotion into these various projects so if you're encountering struggles and have tension it's good to release that like we need to take care of each other as well so yeah. I'm happy and honored to provide that space and that comfort yeah. for you 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 deserve that support yeah. well so to more official business things, okay. um, Serious. how is your week going though? Like beyond all of this stuff, you got this tide pools coming up. How's your week looking otherwise? Uh, <laughs> um, there's a lot going on. <laughs> and a lot. I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I feel like a lot of storylines are converging in this upcoming week. So I'm bracing myself for what will be the inevitable emotional turmoil that I will suffer just because mm -hmm. that's how I react to things when people are struggling, whether programmatically or personally. So I've got about four or five different things happening this week that are going to definitely add a lot of stress to my life. I, in particular, I like to know what to expect. I think I grew up with a lot of instability and the mm -hmm. way my mind works, I crave, if not rely upon predictability, organization, mm -hmm. a schedule. 
So with the tumult of power outages and lots yeah. of other external circumstances, everything is somehow happening this week. And that sends my OCD into a spiral. Like I, I don't know what to expect. I can't predict these things. This is out of the usual schedule. So I am high wired for stress. <laughs> yeah. And, and so that is something that we talk a lot about with students and the way we organize classes is so mm. many students need that. Like, I think I've been trying to do more of that, but that's certainly an area I struggle with, right? Like mm. for me, I'm thinking about trauma-informed teaching and choice is a big part of that, but also like structure and stability. So like structure and stability with choice. And I think the part where I find myself struggling in wanting to be a really good trauma-informed teacher is I've got the heart and the choice built in and the agency built in, but I really struggle with that structure piece that you're talking about and getting like just consistent schedule. Because my kind of thing is the opposite is yours. I have difficulty making a schedule and then sticking to it. Mm -hmm. And I think that, so that's where my like, own issues creep in is I'm really like loosey-goosey and flexible and that can be great but that also I have to recognize where my my desires for loosey-goosiness can sometimes infringe on students needs right they, they need that yeah. support and structure yeah and sometimes it's striking a balance between the two because mm-hmm. I mean you're calling it loosey-goosey but I would say that's flexible and that's adaptable and there's a certain confidence and certainty in the relationships you've built like there's a trust there that even if things get rescheduled they know that you're there so that's great and I feel like sometimes I swing the pendulum too far to the other side where I want to stick to the schedule so bad that I might not be able to see you know times where we need flexibility but that is me becoming a caregiver that I didn't have so mm. I'm constantly reinventing okay how do I create a structure and a predictability that will make people feel safe yeah. I don't know how to do that because I'm the first one doing that ever <laughs> so I just ask for forgiveness from students and colleagues mm. like I don't know if I'm doing this right I'm just trying my best and please let me know if I'm being too anal about things or if I'm not being structured enough. So I think we're all just doing the best that we can. Yeah. <laughs> we're doing the best we can. And we're in particular, what I've been, I've been spending so much time with students this semester talking about trauma and healing for my 201 class. And so we're doing the best we can. We're re- literally reading one of the books, the best we could do. Um, but we're, yeah. so we're, do- we're doing the best we can, but we're also like, responding in ways that are specific to our own experiences that we don't even always have control over. Like we don't even know when we're responding from that place of like the reason I'm doing this thing that I just react and it causes a problem for somebody is because of this deep rooted thing in me that I I'm just now figuring out about how I was raised or something, right? Like Mm -hmm. that. So that's been on my mind for sure. This semester, what you're talking about there is, is like being one of the first ones to do this thing this way you're doing it in your family right like I I definitely relate to that like certainly one of the most stable places in my life I've ever been right now and that's like Mm -hmm. that's interesting I think some folks maybe go the opposite where it was a lot of stability and then end up in an unstable situation or they're uncertain about how the work will be but for some reason this is like by far the most stability I've ever had so um Yeah. yeah It's kind of a weird contradiction because, uh, I, I mean, I guess you just have to prepare yourself to deal with very uncomfortable moments and 
it seems like when you have stability and you have privilege, like in our positions, that's really where you have to grapple with the emotional underpinnings of being the first to do something and trying to maintain who you are authentically, but also add to your identity, this whole new culture of a system and an institution and, you know, basically being a leader for hundreds of people every semester, it, it really forces you to confront a lot of your past and mm -hmm. what you're trying to envision for your future. So it's all of these timelines and all of these spaces <laughs> converging all at once. And it can be a bit of a maelstrom at times. <laughs> Jade, we're coming off of, so this is, this is a Monday we're recording. We're coming off of Friday. Mm -hmm. One of, I'm going to say my, one of my favorite professional development sessions that I've ever had. And oh. you, you'd led us through an activity on Friday in our department meeting. And I think in that moment, I, I laughed a lot. I cried a little bit. I was <laughs> super motivated. You had me like bought in from the beginning. And, and that's really like when I, when people come on here, I, I tell them things I love about them because that's what this is in a lot of ways. And oh, well, one thing I'll come that, on every week. Yeah. <laughs> One one thing that that showed me, and I I knew it to be true, but like I felt it really prevalently on Friday was how you like create that energy in the classroom to where I was like, I was ready to give you, I was sign over whatever if it's a if you have a cult, I'll sign over whatever <laughs> I needed in that moment. And it's not about being, it's not about manipulation. It's about like mm -hmm. you created that condition where I wanted to laugh, I wanted to do the activity, I wanted to engage. Like I was motivated and I when I feel myself motivated by something I know that like man that students in the class are having that same feeling and and that's something so I don't know if it's just like I I would say the only word that's coming to mind is I think your pedagogy is very fresh and authentic and both of those things are like things I strive for and I just watched you model them so cool. And I was blown away. Like I, I wanted, I immediately was like, I want to do this activity with my students because this was powerful. It was relevant. It was enjoyable. You made us laugh. You had, we were all over the map on emotions in the best way. And it felt totally safe and good. And that, I, I, that's kind of what I was speaking to before, but there's like, that's what you do. You did that. And I really, I think that's awesome. Thank you so much. I mean, I think of uh, preparing for that session, leading all the way up to the moment that I opened my mouth when it started, I was so insecure and grappling with, is this useful? Is this relevant? Will they get it? Will they get something out of it? Because I, I really just go into meetings with my colleagues as you know, just racked by imposter syndrome. Like all of these people are smarter than me, are way more experienced and prepared. And so whatever I have to say, like, what, what are they going to get out of it? What could they possibly do? So I feel like I have to overcompensate yeah. in my preparation and just amping myself up. So I'm just riddled with self-doubt. Um, even when I'm teaching, you know, I know that I'm supposed to be the leader to some degree in the classroom, but I get sick to my stomach before every class session. So I think that's kind of my personal journey going into delivering information and leading through activities. So I really appreciate your feedback because oh. oftentimes with teaching, we don't get a lot of feedback. You know, you're not sure 
if people are quiet because something is resonating or because they're checked out. <laughs> so it's nice to just have feedback and I'm glad that it was productive for you. Um, so thank you. Well, I mean, that's, I think that gets me into the the main, one of the main pieces of this is how you got to this place. And like, I see, I'm seeing right now, um, the, one of the more evolved forms, like not final form, we're all growing, but one of your, you, I'm seeing you long way into your career and you were on my tenure review committee and saw me like starting out here. And I, I've always looked to you as kind of like, the cool big sister I want to have like <laughs> evaluate me and be like yes I need your praise but, uh-huh. <laughs> um, but I've so I've seen you in this place now where you are and you're just blowing me away and you're so exciting and engaging how did you get here like what was your what was your pathway like to get here oh uh, geez well I, I think to talk about my pathway into education I have to start pretty early on because I grew up in a family of refugees and immigrants from Vietnam. And so education was not something that was built into our family tradition or our our culture. I know that with these model minority stereotypes, people often see Asians, you know, this pan-Asian stereotype of being very successful, very smart, that education is an easy path for them. But I think what that myth really eclipses and negates and neglects in a lot of ways are the families who came to this country without any literacy, without kind of any educational background or expectation for education to be part of their lives. So I grew up in a house without books, and I remember many instances of reading in this project where I grew up to kind of stay out of trouble. My dad would take me to the bookstore on my weekends with him. So I really credit him for bringing reading and writing into my life. So I would be reading and in the house where I grew up, I would be chastised for reading because why? You're being lazy. You're just sitting around reading someone else's story. And it's usually a white person's story. And we have lots of mistrust of white people because they're the reason we had to leave our homeland. So every act of reading was just imbued with all of this traumatic history of colonialism and poverty and racism. So it really almost felt like reading and writing was a betrayal to my culture and my people in a lot of ways. So when people say like, oh yeah, your family was super supportive. No, not at all. I Nobody talked to me about going to college. I was failing high school the first two years because of mental health issues and suicide attempts. And then it wasn't until junior year where some things happened that I can't really disclose because of other people involved, but I really tried to turn my life around and try to live it instead of getting closer toward death. So um, I was able to graduate and uh, thank you to my friend, Kyle Cooper, who was like a 4.5 GPA basketball star who was sitting next to me during the practice SATs. And there was a part where you had to bubble in, like, what colleges do you want us to send your scores to? And I was like, college? Nobody talked to me about that. That That's not an expectation. My mom just said, marry a doctor, you know, have a house, have children. This is what the women are expected to do. Like, the women in my family are tough, strong. They ran that joint. But there was no expectation for us to go to school. And uh, many of the women in my family never went to school past elementary school. So, um. 
<laughs> so Kyle is filling out for Cal State Long Beach because I had a good basketball program and it was local. <laughs> so I go, okay, Cal State Long Beach. I know Long Beach. I got some homies in Long Beach. So let's do that. That sounds familiar. Um, turns out I got a perfect score on my PSATs. I don't know how I did that because for everything math, I'm just bubbling in C. So <laughs> serendipity, I got a perfect score on my PSATs. They gave me a fat check for a thousand bucks and Cal State Long Beach sent me a letter like we're impressed with their scores. We'd like to invite you to attend in fall of, I won't say to age myself, but um. So I get into Cal State Long Beach and I'm way out of my depth. Like all those nightmares, those cliche nightmares about showing up to the wrong place, wrong time in your underwear were very much my true lived experience that first semester of college. And um, I failed all my classes except one, which was Black Studies. And I was enrolled in Black Studies instead of the equivalent of English 100 because I was a late enroller. Because again, I had no idea what I was doing. I'm just kind of showing up and asking people, what do I do? Not even asking people, I was too scared to ask. But luckily, some people directed me in certain ways. Um, my Black Studies professor, her name was Erica Fuller. And I don't believe she's at Cal State Long Beach anymore. But she came in, a new instructor, and just blew my mind. <laughs> Because I had been taught, even though I had AP classes in high school, been taught in a very traditional white Western way that didn't speak to me in any way. And so I didn't do the greatest. I didn't take AP tests because I couldn't afford them. Um, but here was a teacher who day one was asking us personal questions and she had us line up against the chalkboard and was asking us questions about how we grew up and then for every advantage that you had you take a step forward and I remember me and this other student Chantal we were the only ones who took less than two steps forward and so we're looking at all of our classmates so far ahead of us in the classroom and looking at each other and realizing even though we're from very different backgrounds we've had all these odds stacked against us and that was a very pivotal moment for me because it was not only this like cross-cultural interracial bond that was built like actually seeing and physically experiencing this oppression that we had normalized for ourselves for 18 years before we got to that classroom. And here was a professor that was showing it to us and saying, what are you going to do? How are you going to use your time in this classroom with each other, with your own writing to do something about it? And so it was the first time that I was able to write from my own experience and to have someone see it. And I remember having an office hours meeting with Professor Fuller and us talking about being mixed race and how that compounded a lot of our struggles with our identity and becoming first generation college students. And she said something about, you know, sometimes I just think back to my ancestors and I call on them. And I was just like, whoosh. <laughs> You know, like all these generations came flying back to me and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm the first person in my family to be born in the U.S., to have this privilege, this opportunity to go to school. And yes, I'm failing all my other classes, but I owe it to Professor Fuller to write it out. 
and let's go back and let's do it again. And there's one part of my personality when people say you can't do something is to like fight back harder. And that is something my mom would call very like like stubborn, like hard headed. But it worked for me at school because I came back the next semester and got straight A's. And then I got straight A's for 11 more years until I finished my bachelor's, my master of fine arts and my PhD all in Damn, Damn. that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, so give me an F and I'll get three degrees. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. I love that. So just really quick, like I, so many amazing things in there that that I'm just like popping on. My brain's on, on fire, but like, but there's, I'm, I'm, I'm always, I think maybe, I don't know if I'm a narcissist or what, but I'm always thinking about how I relate to what you're saying. And I'm connecting with so many things that you're pointing out, but also seeing too, like the, the different manifestations of them, right? Like, um, I too was raised by a badass mom, right? Like <laughs> a mom that fought to be like the only woman in a lot of male spaces so she Mm -hmm. was like I was in scouts and she was leading in scouts I was in church stuff she was leading in church stuff and faced a whole bunch of shit in all those ways and but like there's something about that that like fierceness that there was a like it instilled a belief in me that like this is you will make this work right like Mm -hmm. even if there's like no evidence to support that it should right? Like what, what is the preconceived notions? What are the, what's the money saying? What's the paper saying? What's all of it saying? But she just had this, like, I don't know if it's drive or what you would call it, but like, I, so I really connect to that, that there's, even if it comes out differently and obviously like both of us, it's different than how our parents showed up, but that same spirit is there, right? That like our, the thing that pushed you forward almost is a the different evolution or different manifestation of what your mom's mentality was, right? Yeah, I think, I mean, for women who got a hustle to survive, that is definitely a modeling of a work ethic that, mm-hmm. you know, both of us, we pick up and we carry into our professions, even though the women in our family probably never would have thought of us <laughs> having this profession. Yeah. You know, like I, I mean, my grandmother was a sex worker, but she hustled to make Mm -hmm. sure all of her children survived and most of them made it to America all at different times, of course, but she hustled to make sure that we were here and we were safe from bombs. Mm -hmm. And my gosh, now I have a granddaughter who could go to school and my grandma would always say what are you doing like so 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 much reading is to give me a headache you know she'd always say like what are you doing she didn't understand it at all but I know that it was because of the sacrifices she made that I could have these opportunities and that I don't have to live an unsafe life in danger so I'm very indebted to her and and I think the women in our lives formal education or not it's that storytelling to survive to keep you connected to your roots to tell you who you are and who you come from that is this extraordinary power so I don't think it's it's any accident that we both end up in a letters department teaching Mm -hmm. stories telling stories because that is a survival mechanism for so many people who have the system against them Uh, and you know I'm thinking like I watched my mom work two jobs and Mm -hmm. then would still, she showed up to all, she did all the things with me. Like she was so involved in my life that like Mm -hmm. her, her free time was me. And there was so little free time. And like, 
just to see someone like work that hard, you can't not do it. Like you feel like when I come home and I'm tired and it's like five o'clock and I've come home from my first job, my only job. Right. And it's like, (laughs) I know that someone else spent 70 plus hours a week. So I could have that. Right. And it's like this, Mm -hmm. it's like that gift that you remember knowing that like that brought you there. But yeah, the, the no formal education, like my mom was just high school graduate, um, Mm -hmm. didn't have, didn't, didn't go on to do a lot. She was, she worked in like bookkeeping and secretary type work for a while. Um, but I let, I realized recently that she was a teacher and I didn't even know it until, and I, I, I thought we were sitting there or outside. We have this like patio between our, our, my house and my, my wife's house is here. And then my mom lives in what was the garage that's been converted to like an apartment for her. So she okay. has, like her own little spot. So in between them, there's like this patio and we come out and sit there and it's like our, it's our happy space. We just sit with our family. We turn the lights on we have little fires and we just hang out. And we were talking about all the stuff she used to do. And I'm just, I was just thinking like, I watched her lead so many times and it just it was never in a way that we would say like a formal, it was definitely not academic. It wasn't, she wasn't credential. She just was doing this work she started as a volunteer in scouts and started then like leading meetings and teaching people and I just like I had this like light bulb that 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 absorbed into me and I didn't even know it right like that she was doing these things through all this work for her so just like being raised by badass women is one of I look at that as like one of the best gifts that I had a mom that was like that and I know that in it's just made me it's made my life different since then but um that's so lovely I I have a very opposite experience where my mom and a lot of women they were badasses but they had nothing to do with me like I I was also raised by the latchkey teachers and the playground aides at elementary school so I think um you know similar to how elephants are so attached to their maternal figure but they're also raised by the herd when Mm -hmm. the the mother's not around they definitely identify with that and um I think in the absence of having an involved parental figure growing up I strive to be that for my students because I see that similar pain Uh of neglect in my students like you can tell sometimes just by body language and then on top of that the things students share in their essays that they've had experiences where someone wasn't there to hear them or see them and so I know how hurtful that is and how traumatic it can be and so I kind of strive to be that for others because I wish I had that growing up too so it's just interesting these different contexts but we come around to the same value you know (laughs) did you who were so you were you're kind of bringing up an idea that I like a lot of pseudo parents like the parent that you mentioned it like in the 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 elephant tribe the herd the group raising that person um I definitely had some pseudo parents that like I would be at their house like my parents were always working they're always gone so like when we weren't together they were gone and it was just so I had many pseudo parents of family friends and that, that re- huge impacts my life. The Mayberries shout out to the Mayberries. So I know we're not listening, but that's okay. That's okay. <laughs> Who is just one pseudo parental figure in your life that you were, that you feel you were raised by? Um, hmm, gosh, it's, uh, it's hard to narrow it down to one because uh, I've also experienced a lot of death in my life. So unfortunately, mm-hmm. some of these important figures passed away early in my life. Um, and I think too, because of some of the traumas I've endured, it's hard to 
uh, forge lasting relationships. But I definitely think, you know, there's uh, my aunt Gina, my great aunt Adele, who was also a writer in her own way. She like worked for newspapers in the 40s and would write these detailed Christmas cards (laughs) every year to everyone. And She'd be um, writing like cool poetry like you do for a fun online mag now if she was alive. <laughs> oh yeah, she'd be a total yeah. zinester. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but even but, like teachers in our life, right? Like you mentioned yeah. teachers that had that same kind of role, like that provided you with the things that they knew you needed that for no fault of their your family and my family weren't able to give in that way, this person can. Um, I know teachers are a huge role of that. Do any of those stand out? Yeah, I mean, Professor Fuller definitely was one. I had a professor in my undergrad and then in my master's as well, um, Brian Finney. He was this proper English gentleman, but he'd grown up in London like and seen Hendrix in bars when Hendrix, before Hendrix was Hendrix. Yeah. He had all these crazy British 60s stories. And he was one of the first people in my seminar for Virginia Woolf as an undergraduate. And Virginia Woolf, by the way, is someone yeah. who literally saved my life by writing books from... 150 years before I was born but um I remember him writing on one of my papers have you ever thought of doing creative writing Mm -hmm. (laughs) and you know that was something I did privately and in shame on my own (laughs) but for someone to pay attention to me enough to make this recommendation of have you thought of this as like a life path that really blew my mind. I had another professor named Susan Hansel who taught me literary theory and she had said something similar. Like, have you ever thought of grad school? And I was like, what the hell is grad school? What are you talking about? There's more school. More we Uh, can do. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So um, there was just little moments like that. And I had a fourth grade teacher named Miss Ono who saw me struggling with, uh, like mental illness essentially as a nine-year-old and she really tried to make an effort to help me let go and of the anxiety and the OCD and so she was the first person to notice that because I think everybody else especially in those early days of education thought I was just an overachiever and then I had everything together and Miss Ono was the first first Asian American teacher first of all but who actually saw me as struggling with something deeper and trying to address it and she showed me how to make a Christmas cookie, which I didn't even know you can make Christmas cookies. I was like, what's this Christmas thing? Show me more. <laughs> um, so yeah, I have all these memories of people who unfortunately don't even know what a great impact, like a life changing and a life-saving impact they've had on me. So I I really try to encourage students, but everyone in my life to just reflect on those moments of these, you know, passing strangers essentially who make you turn corners in your life and without them who knows where we'd be I shudder to think of where I'd be without all these people oh for sure yeah I know and like that you've mentioned it a little bit with that creative writing comment and that teacher that saw you which is such a powerful thing right and I've been talking about that at this the HSI faculty symposium Saturday we were talking about like the people who the, the person, um, Dr. Joe Lewis, was using, um, he's, he's formerly incarcerated and using a lot of pedagogy informed from an experience and was talking about like the rose that grew through the concrete, like the Tupac poem, right? And he was like, who are the, the teachers in your life that like break the concrete and that productively heal the concrete where you need it to be healed, but like create those, those um, transformative ruptures, I think is what he used. And I see like, 
teacher like that, like kind of creating a transformative rupture, right? Like showing you something that you would, that just opened up a door for you. Right. Um, and gave you that sunlight just for a minute. But Hmm. so were there other moments, like a really powerful moment for you where you felt, I kind of describe it as like, where you really, like you got it all of a sudden, like you felt like you were grabbing Mm -hmm. onto the wheel a little bit of your education because I was definitely floating. You mentioned high school earlier. I was a terrible (laughs) high school student. I was awful. I failed so many classes. I was just not, it was not good, right? Like it was not, if I hadn't met my wife, it was not looking up, you know, it was not looking good for me. (laughs) But um, do you have moments like that where you felt like you're not moving through it now you felt like from this experience you're you're guiding yourself or you're starting to make your you're getting like the hang of it so what comes to mind when you ask that question is (laughs) here's how old I am one day I was walking through the mall (laughs) I love a good mall my mom worked there (laughs) oh she did (laughs) yep yep second job (laughs) oh man I love me some food court (laughs) spent a lot of days there yeah, I know malls now are just like ghost towns. It's apocalyptic. It's just a turning of the tides. I'm such an 80s kid. So yeah. I'm walking through the mall and I happen across a Borders bookstore in the mall. Ooh, yeah. And I'm just browsing through as I want to do because I've always been very frugal with money. But the one place I always spend, spend, spend is on books. And my dad thought, taught me that. So I'm very thankful to my dad for that. And I find this book called um the gangster we're all looking for by leti yimpui and i remember crouch it was on the bottom shelf which is an apt metaphor and i'm crouching down and i'm looking at this and i'm like wait a minute record scratch because up until that point i felt like my vietnamese american identity and the storytelling i knew for cultural transmission for spirituality all of these things that i had practiced storytelling through was one path and then my schooling was this other path and I'm like oh yes I love world war one soldiers poetry <laughs> and like all this weird random stuff I'm the like, red badge of courage I really identify with that so I have these two paths in my life that are very important to me but in that moment where I saw that book they crossed and they braided and I realized oh I'm getting goosebumps just retelling the story I got one when you said braided that was like oh that was the apt metaphor yeah yeah you intertwine like myself and my studies became intertwined because I realized um showed me oh my gosh we can write stories about ourselves and our people and I'd never seen our culture written in English on a page let alone in a bookstore so I immediately buy it. I devour the book, read it three, four times. And I'm identifying so much with the cyclical nature of trauma, with the familial bonds broken through diaspora, of all the references to food and her interspersing her pepperings in of Vietnamese words. And it just became this cultural hybridity of a text that so resonated with me and made me feel at home. I was entering into my second year of my master of fine arts program in creative writing and so in that second year I completely committed to writing of my own experience and my family's stories and putting them on the page so it was the first time that I wrote about being Vietnamese it was something that I had been taught to be ashamed of both externally and internally 
Um, so it was really this cleaving together of the space of the classroom and the work I was doing for school and then myself and the stories that I knew. So they were fictional stories. I was in an MFA for fiction writing, but there was a lot of truth in there. And it was in that program that I met two, three people who actually changed my life. Erin, you mentioned like how your wife changed your life in high school and helped you through that. So I met my husband, my now husband in the second year and his writing blew me away. Like I didn't even know that was possible. And he was always, this was before we were married and we were just friends, but he was telling me like, I love your writing. And he was the first one who like was a fan of me and who supported me no matter what. Um, and then I met Jason Kasim, who's a professor at Long Beach City College now, and he shared his writing and I felt like he's Native Hawaiian and there were so many cross-cultural similarities that I felt at home reading his work. And then I felt like I had understanding when he read my work. And then Christian Lozada, who teaches uh, as well, I think it's at um, East LA College, um, but his work was so amazing and he's mixed race and identifies as API. So it was just like all of these voices and these people who were supporting my writing in this very risky, treacherous area of writing about being Vietnamese. So I felt very validated and supportive. So I think that was the rose in the concrete for me. Oh, I love it. That's amazing. And and the, the way you're describing that of like the bringing of the two halves together, the two strands together and braiding them. Um, I I've, that's been on my mind a lot. And it's something that I think we know as educators, specifically in English classes, English 100, but, but both of both of our main classes we teach in English, that is what we're aiming for in so many ways. And if I kind of look at like my 100 class as a way to be that experience, if possible for students, like it, you, you're in this new environment, you're in this school system and how can what we're doing here like it's not gonna it, it's not gonna be this like new additional like thing you apply to yourself rather it's mm -hmm. going to be taking parts of you taking parts of the new and weaving them together and that that's just such a cool way to describe it is braiding i was using um yoked like yoke the two pieces together and in particular jade where i've been thinking about it a lot is in trauma responses and i i my trauma response is to be everything is smooth and great don't worry about it I I will mm -hmm. happy yes it's kind of like mm -hmm. how um so I don't fight or flight I do like lay on the ground and be the cute puppy dog that no one wants to hurt oh you know? the fawn response yeah I mm. think that's more my my approach is to be like I'm adorable and nice don't harm me right mm -hmm. um what that look that's far more like culturally palatable as well for people mm -hmm. that response is it, it doesn't always it doesn't certainly doesn't always show up as a trauma response to people but I recognize where that's coming from is like when oh no the shit's getting rough again like I'm okay. it's okay I'll be the fun guy today you know so I've seen this in I, I'm trying to think in my mind when I work with students who I am seeing the opposite trauma response but recognize that it's a trauma response and that response looks like the um, the defiant type student, the student who's like really putting up walls, putting up a lot of barriers. And I, I have been watching this show called The Bear. Have you seen it? 
so triggering so <laughs> so stressful <laughs> like have you seen have you seen both seasons i don't want to spoil anything for no you. i i only watch a couple episodes and i got so stressed out i had too to much yeah it. <laughs> yeah it's it's loud and chaotic and aggressive mm-hmm. in a way that's like um it's hard it was definitely a hard watch at times but i really loved it and there's something about like one working class poverty just yeah. right here that's my those are my people um like I know a lot of Richies you know like I've, I've I don't necessarily if I don't know them my dad definitely knew the Richies right mm. who were you know having some business deals on the sides but the point of the story is a couple of the characters in there Richie is one of them um Richie is like I am what I'm I am what I am I'm defiant I'm gonna be I'm gonna do it my way no matter what you say and, um Tina the um latino fry cook right who becomes this like chef like she they 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 really what they really do is they provide her with safety and care and mm-hmm. say like we're investing in you and we are gonna send you to culinary school we're, we're like we want you we're not gonna go hire someone else we want you we believe in you and empower you to do what you want to do and you watch her like fierceness be directed towards this goal that it instead of a fierceness being that energy being directed at like walls it's being directed outward towards a task and i'm i'm so i'm i've been thinking about that a lot with that like ways we can bring those two pieces of people together that's a long way to say like we're we're strand we're braiding that strand because that trauma response is power right? Like it's a powerful thing. It's what is, it's going to be what drives me when everything else is gone, that will be there. So yes, yeah. why, why put that on the sideline and rather than like, say, shut it out of the class, like bring that in and utilize it, but in a safe, productive way, you know? You know, and that is the very reason why I try to get students in community a lot because I have a fight response like automatically. And I think that comes from feeling alone in every battle. And so I immediately like I'm ready to fight. But if like, like I said, in my master's program, I had these wonderful people to support me. It was that sense of being in community where I felt like I didn't have to fight alone anymore. Like there were people on my side. And so I think Every time I assign some group assignment or a presentation or something in class, I feel that groan that the students do. Like I resonate with that because that's how I felt too. But I also know on the other side of it that when I look back, it's that group community mentality, that support network that is really what teaches the students. I'm there to facilitate. Like you're not going to really learn that much from me by a certain point. It's these people who are around you. That's going to be the lasting relationships. I mean, maybe you don't get married to them like we did that we met at school, (laughs) but this can be a lasting support system. I'm still friends with Jason and Christian. And, you know, I look to them for advice on everything that I do. And when I'm worried or stressed that maybe I did something wrong, I look to them and say, do you understand? where I'm coming from like help me through this and I always know that I have someone who's willing to listen and that makes all the difference so students I apologize for putting you in group work but it's that community building that saves us (laughs) there's something beautiful about it and it's it's so you're so right in that it it it's what matters really right like the the knowledge we've hit a point where knowledge is 
in a lot of ways out there for anyone and the there's and I, I you you could know many more things than I could ever possibly know but what else what else matters right and I think that you're hitting on some of those points about like working together and I in particular like where I've been talking a lot in class is healing like this space even if it doesn't show up on the core but like my English 100 class I hope is a healing experience for you in some way or is it if not if it's not healing it's at least not damaging you for your education it's setting you up for success for that and that doesn't show up in our our documents that say what our classes are about you know I think pain shuts a lot of people down and that's why they're not willing or practice in asking questions or learning to hear people or engage with people so that's my goal I mean if you look at anything on the news today whether it's Gaza or Sudan or <laughs> local news like everything is about these divisions these stories we've told about each other that pit us against one another and so if in my classroom I can get people who to talk to each other who wouldn't ordinarily speak to each other to listen to ask a question to let them know that curiosity is okay this is not mm -hmm. a place where you're going to get burned or hurt by opening up then maybe that's just like a little microcosmic nugget of what they can carry with them in their lives the relationships that they have I always I tell them these cheesy things like the metaphors of hey this will help you have a great first date with that person that you have a crush on you know <laughs> ask them good questions get to know them yeah. but ultimately my goal is to create world peace <laughs> yeah like I'm like let's we're gonna have this really beautiful group project where you're gonna work together you're you're gonna you're going to have total freedom by letting go of a little bit of your individuality for a second to work as part of this collective because we are eventually going to overthrow capitalism but that's beside the yeah. point we don't have to talk about that today <laughs> we're, we're just really going to collectively do this anyways um yeah, totally. so we we got we got distracted on your journey because oh, okay. I, I found a, clearly aligned with a, I found a person I've, I'm deeply aligned pedagogically with so I just am talking about things like when you're what you're saying is like yes 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 that's what teaching is about so when you were when you finished grad school what was like what was after that for you like you you had gone through this process but we don't even I mean grad school trauma hello right like but what what was your path there after that. Uh, well, during my master's program, I started teaching at Cal State Long Beach, um, and I took two years off after that grad program to just teach there, and uh, so I was doing the adjunct life of half at Cal State Long Beach and half at other community colleges, and I felt like there was a bigger mission that I had to contribute to, especially with Vietnamese American literature. And at the time it was very under-recognized. And we, that was before we had a Pulitzer prize winner with, you know, our last name and our cheekbones <laughs> all over the news. So um, that's when I applied to PhD programs. And I kind of feel like I'm the type of person that I'm a total fan girl. So if I'm into something, I'm going to be into it all the way. So I was like, Oh, there's another degree I could get. Let's do that. And so in the PhD program, I was still teaching while doing the PhD and then teaching in their programs, which was a very traumatic experience for me because I saw in the UC system what, I mean, you mentioned capitalism, Aaron, but I felt like students, <laughs> PhD students, uh, undergrads, faculty were all just cogs in a machine and seeing mm -hmm. how 
the Department of Defense was funding certain programs and literature was just like a walking joke and all of the implicit and explicit racism I experienced at this institution of supposed higher learning was just very demoralizing. So I knew that I couldn't quit because I mentioned to you earlier, if I make a list of things, I have to do them in that order. <laughs> so I finished two years early because I was like, I got to get out of here. So I just basically against the advisement of my committee, I just wrote a dissertation on the side <laughs> about Vietnamese American literature. And I showed up one day to my chair and I was like, look, I did it. I'm done. Let's sign the paperwork. Get me out of here. And wow. she was like, well, well, we haven't even, there's a process. And I was like, what about your lists? Oh. Did you do your lists, Jade? <laughs> I was like, I've done it all. I'm ready to go. <laughs> so I get out and I realize that that's not a system that I want to teach in because I felt mm -hmm. it was very counter to teaching the kind of critical thinking and empathetic, uh, human-centered education that I was an advocate for. And that's where I found um, a place at community college, not only because it's an open access as a a public and affordable, relatively affordable institution. But I felt like the teachers at community college and in particular Miracosta was heads and shoulders above anywhere else that I had taught. And I had taught at like 10 institutions, but it was the first place where I felt like people actually wanted to talk to each other and were taking time on becoming better teachers instead of all of these side conversations between faculty disparaging students. I, I heard some disgusting conversations at other institutions of people talking down about students' deficit mentality, just straight up insulting, if not racist. So Miracosta, you know, not a perfect place by any means, no place is, but it was the first place where I felt like I was working in concert with people who had shared values and where I could actually do something and contribute something meaningful, especially in terms of representation of Asian Americans and Vietnamese Americans in particular, given that so many Vietnamese Americans came to Oceanside uh, because of the military base there. So it felt like a place that was important historically and personally and professionally. So that's how I got here. <laughs> that's that's th thanks for sharing. And the the teaching home thing really lands with me, like the finding a teaching home in a way. Like I was a community college student and I remember like the imposter syndrome of going to the grad school, the route, like I went to a small little grad school program for my master's and similar to probably what you described at Long Beach, where you felt, I, I mean, I'm, I'm just reading into what you said, but you felt pretty good. Like it was obviously imposter syndrome and difficult, but like the people there felt good. And maybe I, I had that in mind. Yeah. <laughs> so the, so my, I had, I had a couple of advisors who were very, very impactful on me because their job was students. Their job was teaching. Their job was then research after that, right? So like they kind of showed me how to do the work that I wouldn't have learned how to do other places. And then when I landed in grad school, in my, my PhD program at UC Riverside, gone. That whole support system was gone. It was turned on the individual very much. Even amongst grad students, there really wasn't that much support or that much like uh, collaboration. Um, but certainly the teaching, the T I was teaching exclusively at the UC at first and was learning how to teach really. I had taught one other class before, um, 
with no instruction and just kind of did it. And it was like fun and I loved it. And then I was in this like box model that you teach in, in the, in this UC program where it's very specific using the St. Martin's guide. I don't know if you know the St. Martin's guide, but yeah, <laughs> classic, classic. We're not, we're not going to, we're not here to talk crap about anybody in particular, no. but um, <laughs> so, but the things that we, I, I didn't have the language to articulate why I didn't like it until I set foot in the community college classroom again. And I was assigned what I now know, horrible, this horrible choice. They shouldn't have gave me this class to start, but it was the equivalent of one of our like English fifties or English 52s. And Mm -hmm. I had never taught at that level before. I had never taught students that needed that level of support. And I was totally unprepared for that. But what I did find was people people that I, I, in the room, like people in the room that I was like, oh, I see you. I understand. I know you like in a way that I didn't feel empowered to know students in uh, the other way. And like, it, it showed me a lot. So I step, I step in that room and it didn't take long for me to very quickly feel like, oh, I'm back. Like I'm home. This is where I belong. Like I, I remember feeling like the good feelings I had in the community college experience for me that I I don't think anyone explicitly said, like, don't think about that anymore. But for whatever reason, maybe the program, maybe the the mentality, the thought process of the job market of how you're going to be after you finish a PhD was pushing me away from community college. And like, that was maybe my internalized imposter syndrome saying like, hey, um, I don't belong here because I'm a community college student. So let's just pretend that didn't happen and let you're here now. Right. Mm-hmm. So I was like really running from it. And then I went to that. I have, I needed the money. So I applied for this part-time and it, it changed everything for me. And I felt like at home and, and I, I felt, I remember coming to class one time, my second semester, I had, a, I had an British lit class and a world lit class. And you know, at a community college, when you teach literature courses, you're going to see a lot of the same students. It's the time you get the repeat students for those courses. I was that student for a professor of mine, my, my British old guy, um, Finney, I think you said. Yeah. (laughs) Mine was Dr. Glenn Bush and he had a cane and a long white ponytail and a mustache. And he came in and he was like, Hey, and he was just this, no notes, no plans, just the guy. Mm -hmm. Um, I met, so I was that student. And then I started meeting those students at community college and from the other end now. Right. And Mm -hmm. I remember I was talking about with some, a group of friends at UC, some, some poems I was thinking about assigning. I was like really getting jazzed about this class and none of them were teaching there. They were teaching at other Cal States or other places if they were teaching on the side. Mm -hmm. Um, and one somebody made a comment like, I can't even imagine teaching poetry to community college students. Like they won't get it. They won't, how could you? And I don't know that they knew my background, but it like blew my mind that that so then I remember going back in the classroom the next day with a bunch of poems and I I did the it was a little performative, but I felt it was like useful to like share that. And like this is a th- this is a comment that I just heard about us. And I like that's I think that that moment was when I started saying us. Like yeah we're to so so like seeing those students and feeling that like belief in them I don't remember what the thread of that story was why we got there Jade but like something that you were talking about in this moment like finding that home that home and teaching like Mm -hmm. I began feeling that finally and it took you had to get out you had to get out of that system to do it yeah I I don't think a lot of people realize in academia especially if they're first generation to the system they don't realize how 
capitalism influences this fabricated hierarchy that assigns merit and value and valorizes people who go to a certain institution that has this name or that you have these letters behind your name and they don't realize how exploitative that system is because it's all about pushing you to a certain job I remember when I finished my PhD, they were like, oh, tell us all the publications that you get and where you get hired yeah. because they want to use that as bragging mm -hmm. rights to get more money for their program to do whatever the hell they want to do. And I never told them. I Well, I told them I got a job at Miracosta and they were like, oh, yeah, okay. same college. And so I never told them anything else about publications because I don't want my work to be associated with whatever reputation they're trying to build for themselves because they don't really respect the kinds of education that I think you and I value. And this is one of the big reasons why I never would put like doctor before my name until students, I, I remember uh, teaching the hip hop as literature class for our school, our Lit 120 focus on hip hop. And I remember it was a packed, it was like 50 students who were way over enrolled. Sorry. Um, oh, and so <laughs> all of these students are packed and and they're saying, you know, when we signed up for this class, we had an idea in our head of what you would look like and what you would sound like. And you're way different than what we expected, but we love that. And a lot of the students said, oh, you have your PhD and you're teaching hip hop? you got to wear that doctor with pride because even if you don't like being called doctor, even if it makes you uncomfortable, you're a doctor who supports hip hop. And that's part of the movement. You got to elevate the movement if you're going to be part of it. And that was when I started adding like doctor or PhD because those students helped me see that, yes, I don't like the system that that title came from, but I can use it to support these movements of literature, of literacy, of student community building that I think are important and that are equally, if not more so advanced than the literature that we're taught to respect and valorize in the institution of education. And I definitely fought my battles to even get that class on the schedule. So, um, I'm always happy to show students that there are these ways that we learn storytelling, language, um, poetry, like you said, of connection. It's all there around us. It just hasn't been welcomed into the institution before. And so we have to be those people who fight against the gatekeepers to show them that though borders are porous, borders are just manufactured. So if we can break them down. We can show them that all this stuff is a beautiful part of what we love about being together is talking story, uh, being creative and hoping that stories make us see each other as a little more human. <laughs> I love that. That's, that's, students need so, to see us model the way we want the world to be and if we're passing down that that model that we were given like both of us made conscious choices to break from that and that 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 wasn't working for us not only did it not work for our students but it didn't work for us as people um mm -hmm. you i i am blown away by your grad school experience first of all that you you pushed through and did it because i didn't um i got to that dissertation phase and like i was alone i had no idea what i was doing i didn't even like my project it felt so removed from me and it felt so wrong and it felt like i was not connected to myself 
and trying to do this thing and no help, no, really not support from advisors and folks. And my answer was a little bit of the, I don't know. I, I think the fawn response couldn't work for me anymore because I had done all the things I could do like leadership and teaching. I was doing all that cool stuff there, but the work of the program, I was incapable of doing in some ways. I didn't, at least with that environment. And I pulled out from that and got out of there. And I think, so it's like your strength was to, to go through it in your way, right? Like the way that you're going to do and make your document that you're going to make without even some of those things that they're like making you do the steps along the way. Yeah. And I, I'm like, I, I pulled the ripcord cause I couldn't do, I just had to get out, but it was like a breaking from that thing that we were supposed to be and the thing that we were expected to do. And then when we chose our teaching path, like, no, I'm not doing that. I'm not going to follow in that line. Honestly, Aaron, I'm so glad you walked away because the lessons that you learned and the validation you got from walking away from that system is way more valuable than anything you would have learned by writing a stupid dissertation that nobody's yeah. ever going to read. And that's going to be painful for you to write. Felt inauthentic. Just like I'm yeah. writing something that I didn't even know. I don't know. How do I know this? Academic discourse is gross in that way and very elitist and um, very colonized in its processes. So I don't blame you at all. And honestly, I tell students all the time, if I could go back and do it again, I would not do a PhD program whatsoever. Like I felt like it did more harm than good. So we really just have to ask students you know, is this, is continuing with your education the right thing for you? Or have you learned the things that's going to help you have the life that you want? I had this mm -hmm. conversation with a Mana student last semester and I was like, auntie, I don't want to let you down. I'm like, no, 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 no. You're not letting me down. If you know what you need to know after taking my class and you're going to take this other path, please take the other path. And I'm so happy for you. And I'll hug you every time I see you. Like, I just want you to have the life that you want. College is not the only answer. For some mm -hmm. reason, we have it worked into our culture that college is the only way to get a good job and be happy and all this. It's not. It's just one path. It's just one thing you can do. There's so many other things that you can do. And I know that maybe is not the best advertisement from a faculty member, but I just want students to think for themselves and not succumb to a pressure to be part of a system. I don't want my students to be part of a system. I want them to be themselves. Yes. And it's really hard to operate as yourself in the system when that system has, like we've mentioned before in this pod, like it's been built to for other people, right? It's been built yeah. for a specific type of person to excel in that system. And um, I'm, I think that that's one of the, the biggest points of why I, I'm starting a lot of these interviews with people is what, what experience made us feel that way? What it made us kind of like felt like we didn't belong, felt pushed out, felt and I'm, I'm, you've shared many of them so far, but do you have something that like, that you feel a lot of your students maybe relate to that was a moment you felt discouraged by the system or discouraged by a professor or an administrator, something that pushed you away. And then you, you've had, you've like reckoned with that a little now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> There's so many to choose from really. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've been accused of plagiarism and I have 
been said to be writing about a fantasy world when talking about my own experience as a Vietnamese person, which is a real place in the world. That's not like Middle Earth or something. Um, so <laughs> which would have been an A, that one. Yeah, you yeah. got an A on that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's elves. Sure, go ahead. <laughs> That's great. Perfect. Um, there's so many experiences, like far too many to list, but I, I think one that would be important to share because it was further along in my education. It was in the latter half of my PhD and I was teaching for one of the colleges and um, I was being evaluated. And the evaluation process started out with them wanting to see student feedback or evals from a previous semester. And that was like part of my application to teach this class. And so I brought in a sets of my student evals from Cal State Long Beach, and they were all very positive. And on the evals, it says, you know, there was 22 students, 21 replies. And so I bring in the 21 replies. These are handwritten at the time. Again, I'm so old. And so I bring them out and the hiring committee has them spread out on the table and the director of the program goes, where's the rest? Where are the bad ones? And I said, excuse me? Uh, like, no it ones. says 21 out of 21, there's 21 here. And she's like, but they're all positive. And I say, yeah, because <laughs> it's me. What can I say? Like, what? <laughs> I like, I didn't understand the question, but then it became very clear that she thought I had fudged these things. So I was assumed to be a liar and a cheat trying to get this highly coveted position, I guess it was competitive. And so there was questions like that from the beginning, but once I had been evaluated, the director calls me into their office afterwards to give me the rundown of their thoughts on how I taught the class. Everything is very positive and great, this content, pedagogy, all of these things. And then I say, okay, great. And I start packing up and he goes, one more thing. You need to work on your accent. And I said, hmm? He goes, yes, this whole low class thing that you've got going on, this like ghetto talk, we don't want to send the wrong message to our students that that is acceptable English. I mean, you are teaching them how to speak and write for the university. And if we have a bad example for them, who knows what they're going to do? And I said, thank you very much, <laughs> because there was no point in me having my fight response at this point, because whatever I say is going to come off ghetto. I'm going to be this, quote unquote, passionate woman of color who's up in his face, taking off my earrings and wagging my finger. He's already seen me. He's going to see yeah. me through that lens no matter mm -hmm. what I do. So I said, thank you so much, because it really taught me where this person as a figurehead for the institution was coming from. I knew it wasn't for me and anyone who's going to keep perceiving me as ghetto with whatever degrees I have under my belt. That's not my problem. Yeah. That's their problem. So even far along in the educational journey, we can still have moments like that. But I honestly believe and recapitulate this to my students it's not a question of if you're going to experience discrimination. It will happen. It's too deeply rooted in our society for it not to happen. But what can change is your response to it and how you use it to do something empowering for yourself and others like you who are going to be judged by the color of their skin, their name, the way that they talk, the way that they move their hands when they talk. 
So that's stacked against us. I know that every time I walk into the classroom, that professional development meeting that you mentioned earlier, Aaron, I know that there are, you know, eyes in the room that are going to judge me for all of those characteristics that I have. But I'm doing what I think is important. I feel like I have allies who believe in the same thing. So I have to take comfort in that and keep fighting the good fight. Man. So uh, you answered it a bit, but how did you go on from that? Um, lots of binge eating. <laughs> um, I'm there. I'm there. <laughs> no, it is, it is really hard to pick battles and to choose when to be silent. But again, I felt it would have been more labor on my part to fight against this person and what they represented. But I use that experience as a way to better teach my students because then we can talk about the different languages that we speak, the different linguistic communities we belong to. We can talk about hip hop and why quote unquote slang is a language in and of itself. And it's a language of resistance and empowerment mm -hmm. and of history and of culture and of music. So it's almost just like I had to re-channel the energy into something productive. I know for myself that when I have demoralizing experiences like that, I will punish myself. But what I'm still continuing to learn is that by punishing myself and beating myself up and letting these insecurities persist and influence my actions, is that our systems of colonization and oppression, I'm letting those systems win when I beat myself up. So, you know, whether we're drawing on bell hooks and thinking of loving ourselves as an act of resistance or Trisha Harris's like rest is resistance. That's a hard thing I'm trying to learn is yeah. to rest as a way. I don't to... do well with that one. Violetta can teach us. <laughs> so <laughs> she's hard. good at that. Um, but you know, honestly, sometimes just loving yourself in a world that is has hated you and trains other people to hate you for who you are. Those, I mean, all I can do is control the way I see myself and the way that I share that with students. And like you said, model it for students. And so I hope by in sharing that and same, like when I go to therapy, I share useful things with my students, because if you can't afford therapy or if you're not into going to therapy, let me just share you this one useful thing so we can democratize that knowledge and use it to uplift each other. Um, rather than just fighting the system in isolation. Yeah, I'm, you're speaking so many truths that are hard for me to adopt that I know as well. Like when I, I beat myself up over so many things and I've been thinking about it a lot with the work I'm doing and collaborating with others, which is this like core intrinsic value I have that the community is all. Um, decentralized authority is everything that we are, we are better together. And, and I know like cognitively, all of these things are true, but it, I find myself being unwilling to ask for other people's time. And it's like a thing that I'm thinking about it more kind of like what you're saying. Like I'm recognizing that I have to step out of my comfort zone and be willing to ask. So even like asking you to come on here, um, I wanted, my hope was to have all of this set up months ago, but I found myself being like, no, people are too busy. No, they can't do this. No, this person won't be able to do this for you. Or no, you shouldn't ask. Don't bother this person. Like 
not bothering someone is my like shut it down shut it down like that's my own like shit right that i'm dealing with and i have to flip that script and say like i'm what if it's not bothering them what if they want to do a thing with you what if they like to to be around you i think that's the core i got to the the root of it they're like what if they like to be around you and you don't have to be so I'm psychoanalyzing myself a bit here, but what your pedagogy workshop the other day showed me and just what you as a person show me. And um, I'm going to call out one of our good friends, Gada Osman as well. Um, both of you share this quality that when I'm around you, I feel I can let that feeling go mm-hmm. and let that worry go of like, I don't, I'm not bothering this person. They are, they like, they, they, they accept me and care for me as I am. And I don't have to worry about that. And there's so many things about life that I think like you're describing kind of your own stuff that you're beating yourself up and not loving yourself. And I do that. And I do that so much. And we're, we're two people that I think from the outside people look at and think like, they're just so kind and happy and wonderful. I would say both people people think that about about you. No. When you're, when you're teaching us, when you're in a meeting with us, when your, your, your presence is that. And I think inside, it's interesting to find that, you know, often we're not saying those things about ourselves and we don't believe that about ourselves. And we, we need like, that'll stop us from doing what we should do. That will, that will harm us in our work. Yeah. You know, we focus so much on building the relationship with our students, which of course should always be the priority. But I think we so often neglect building relationships with each other. As faculty, we're kind of on our own a lot of times in the classroom doing that work. And we have these department or committee meetings, but we're not like that's performing a role a lot of times. Mm -hmm. And I don't feel like we're fully there. And because teaching is so emotional for me and it triggers a lot of personal but also educational traumas to be vulnerable by standing in front of a classroom and to be evaluated by my peers and to be on a committee and and like you said to ask for help or even to raise my hand to speak up against something I don't feel is right in a committee meeting with all these other better paid people I was like I am struggling inside and so I wish that there were more opportunities like this like your podcast to make time and space for faculty to get to know each other and just support each other because I think um, we uh, many of us struggle with emotional intellectual physical abilities or disabilities however you want to call it that all inform this job and so Mm -hmm we can support each other with the job and professional development and you're doing a great job as PDP coordinator by the way but also we have, to, we have to support the personal part of it too because yeah. they're inextricable and I don't feel like there's enough opportunities to do that yeah I mean we are not rewarded often for that and I think a lot of us what what's kind of powerful that's come up for me in this workshop or this workshop, Jesus Christ, I'll edit that out in this <laughs> podcast. Um, in this committee I've, meeting. I've been talking about your workshop a lot, but yeah. <laughs> um, what's what's powerful to me about what we've been talking about today is how we both are operating how we know it should be. And we are conscious of what we're not 
conscious of what we don't want to do and conscious of what really matters to us. And we're bringing that into the room. And that requires rejecting things that requires letting go of stuff that people are very invested in sometimes. And so for me, a lot of that's grading related, right? Like, and that's a challenging place with some folks. So, well, in, in light of things that do serve us, what, what do you love about what you do? That's the core of this. What do you what do you love about what you do, Jane? Um, in week twelve, it's a little harder to remember. It is, but <laughs> but it's important now, right? <laughs> I I love a couple of things keep me going, and they really buoy me through the more challenging times of the semester, like now. Uh, one of which is knowing that. I can be a source of comfort for students that they know that I'm a safe person to come to, to, you know, work on something academic and they understand that I'm there vouching for their success or, and, or something personal when they have no one in their life to turn to and that I can be that extended family member who listens above all else but can also offer them options based on my experience of why don't we try this or like, can I walk you here or can we talk about this or, or just to send a text message to say you're okay. Cause I know in my life, just having, knowing that someone's thinking about you can make a world of difference for what you choose to do with yourself. So that is very motivating to know that I can be that for someone an extension of that is that I love, especially with our MANA students, seeing them come into the classroom feeling like they don't belong, they don't know what the heck to do, and then advance over semesters to become leaders on our campus and to have this professional job experience and a CV, and they're the first in their family to ever not have to do a physical labor job and you know, Tane was saying just the other day, like, dang, auntie, we get to work in an air-conditioned office. That's pretty cool. <laughs> you know, like, that's a big deal. That's such a privilege and a luxury. So I love being a part of that to help show them the way to navigate a different space, to write this resume and this um, letter of application, to get into these spaces that affords them opportunities that they didn't even know that they had and that they're badasses out. So there's that. Um, and I like to uh, kind of mentoring new colleagues because I think that the process for becoming a faculty member is scary and stressful mm -hmm. and I don't feel like our culture collectively supports teachers at all <laughs> so to offer support for someone who is pursuing a career that is a thankless job um, makes me feel good because it's important work I believe that education is a way out of oppression so we need to support those who are that light for students. Um, so supporting students, but also supporting the teachers who will help them on their path. So um, I like being able to do that. And I like um, sharing <laughs> with students and faculty alike how reading and writing really saved my life quite literally at various different points. So 
that anyone who's laughed at being an English major maybe hold the laughter for a second because the stories can really be a lifesaver. Yeah. Absolutely. I love that. And I love you too, Jade. Thank you. I love you too, Aaron. Thank you so much for inviting me to do this. Uh, fuck yeah, Jade. That was great. <laughs> um, and in addition to all of that, you're just a really wonderful colleague that I feel truly, truly. And I, I mean, I've shared so many things I love about you, but just truly blessed to have you in my life. Um, I thank you for your work, for us, for your students, um, and just for being you, being you here with us so much I just Aaron I love your heart and that you're willing to share these things that you feel and that is really heartening for me about not just my relationship with you as a colleague but just for our department work ethic and culture and energy and for all that you do on campus for everyone beyond us so thank you for that and thank you for taking time to talk to my silly old self Oh, this was great. There, there are few people I want to talk to more on campus. I think that I, I, dev, I, I feel that I am, um, I want to be with people and talk to them and never have it stop. That's, that's kind mm -hmm. of my MO. Like as a kid, I, I wish I could like flash back to those, um, like sleepover parties where you just for all night it was like hours like it seemed like the time was never going to end there was no worry that someone's going to come pick you up or no worry that you got to go to work or no worry that you got this to do it was just this time with people and I'm I feel like I'm constantly seeking just connection and communication with folks and you are one of the top people I would love to talk with especially in my group here of folks yeah well, thank we'll you I'll cut that out but because other people matter too but but you in particular <laughs> matter a lot to me <laughs> thanks for listening friends we'll be back soon hopefully and with some new colleagues and maybe even some music who who knows thank you for being here I really appreciate you